everyone, and welcome to Classic Gaming Today, where we take a look at the gaming experiences of the past through the eyes of the present. I'm your host, Tony, and today we're going to look at Beneath the Steel Sky, a third-person point-and-click adventure game developed by Revolution Software and published by Virgin Interactive Entertainment in 1994 for the MS-DOS and Amiga computer platforms. We're going to take a look at that title in just a couple minutes, but first, as is usual, just a little bit of housekeeping up front. This is episode number 69. I am excited to be here. I hope all of you are as well. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing, provide feedback, comments, suggestions, or just talk about classic games and technology in general. I would love to hear from you, and there are a few ways you can reach out. I have an X account with the handle at ClassicGamingT. I have an email address, which is ClassicGamingToday at gmail.com. And we have a Discord server. The link is in the show notes. Discord is the best way to get in touch with me and the rest of the community around this podcast. We have a ton of fun out on Discord, including our weekly gaming challenge. Speaking of the weekly gaming challenge, we just finished up season one last weekend. Congratulations, ISO. He did win that season. We also had Kevin from Politely Games, who graciously offered to give free Steam keys to his game last Christmas to anybody who participated in the weekly gaming challenge. So thank you, Kevin. That was an awesome reward. And I know that there have been at least a few people that have already played it that said, hey, sign me up for the sequel first Christmas, which can be wishlisted out on Steam. I know I did, in fact, wishlist that game because I'm looking forward to it. And last Christmas was pretty darn awesome. Moving forward, we are going to shift away from a leaderboard styled concept around the weekly gaming challenge and instead we are going to move into a points based or i'll say coins based rewards redemption kind of thing so rather than competing with everybody we will still have weekly challenges we're still going to have monthly challenges and in fact the latest set of monthly challenges is currently being generated by you the community so we are going to be kicking that off at the end of this upcoming week but what's going to happen now is every challenge is going to have a series of points or coins assigned to it. I keep saying points because that's what we've been doing for the last, so geez, I guess six-ish months or so. We're going to shift over to CGT coins. And what's going to happen is every single week you can accumulate CGT coins. And we are going to have a redemption inventory out there where you can use those coins for prizes. Some of those prizes may be digital, like maybe there'll be an option to sponsor an episode just like some of our patrons can do. There might be some physical rewards like t-shirts and things like that. I'm still working out the inventory details as well as how those points will apply to the inventory, meaning how many points equal each of the different reward tiers or rewards that will be out there. So more to come on that. But that is my thought process around this thing. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. And I think there is pros and cons to removing the competitive aspect of the weekly gaming challenge. On one hand, having the competition for those people who are competitive might have a lot of fun. They might have a lot more fun with that kind of challenge because you literally are competing against other people. On the other hand, when you have a situation where people may want to dip their toes in the water, but they see a leaderboard that has a bunch of people with a ton of points, they might think, I don't want to participate in that because I'm never going to be able to compete. I've started late or whatever. So that's why I'm trying something a little bit different, hopefully to engage even more of the community in the challenges and try to get everybody playing for fun and prizes and rewards and not necessarily so much the competitive aspect. So that's my thoughts. If you do have thoughts on that or you think, hey, you're absolutely crazy, what are you doing? 
Let me know because I definitely want to take feedback here, but this is what I'm thinking. We're going to try it out for at least a few months, see how it goes. We may go back to competition in the future, just kind of playing it out, going to see what happens, how everybody feels about it, and if it's something that's a worthwhile addition. Anyway, that's what I've been thinking about for the weekly gaming challenge. The weekly gaming challenge, by the way, will now run an entire week as opposed to just a weekend. So that's another change meant to drive additional community engagement. Once again, the only way to get engaged there, if this sounds like fun or something that you just want to play around with, the only way to do that is to get out on Discord, join our Discord server. The link is in the show notes. I should also mention that we have a Patreon. It is patreon.com slash classic gaming today. So if you want even more classic gaming today, goodness, patreon.com slash classic gaming today is where it's at. It also includes an exclusive bi-weekly podcast. So I do highly encourage you all to check it out. I'd also like to give a shout out to our Pantheon patrons. They are ISO, Rich Setterwald, David Morton, and Sam Twardowski. Thank you guys for supporting the show. Thank you all for supporting the show, whether you contribute monetarily or simply listen on a regular basis. I truly do appreciate all of the support. For anyone who may be new, welcome. I just want to give a brief overview of the anatomy of an episode because, for the most part, all of our episodes follow a very similar format and structure. We will always start by talking about the history of the game in question, the historical context, how was the game made, why was the game made, and then we move into a pseudo-review kind of section. And I say pseudo-review because it's not like we assign a numerical ranking or star counts or anything like that, but we do look at every single game from several different perspectives. We take a look at the graphics, how does the game look, the sound and music, how does the game sound, the narrative and or story, if the game has one. Playability and controls and overall feel. What does it feel like to play the game today versus when it was released 20, 30, maybe even 40 plus years ago? We do all of that to reach a verdict as far as how well the game holds up today. And to do that, we assign each game to one of several categories. At the very top of our list is the Pantheon of Classic Gaming. If a game reaches the Pantheon, you know it is that darn good. It is a certifiable classic. You should go out of your way to play those games today. Just beyond the Pantheon are our Golden Oldies. These are still really good games. I still highly encourage you to play them, especially if you enjoy the genre in which the game lives. You are almost guaranteed to have a good time. They're not quite Pantheon level, but they're still really good experiences, and I still highly encourage you to play them today. Beyond the Golden Oldies, we reach our Mediocre Mentions. This is where we start getting into the realm of games that I cannot recommend to the broad population. It might have aged a little bit, might have had a couple of issues to begin with. You may still have a good time, especially if you enjoy the genre in which the game lives. By all means, go for it. But I cannot recommend these titles to the broad population. And then beyond the mediocre mentions, we reach the footnotes. These are the games that are best left in the annals of history. I have played them, so you don't have to. I cannot recommend anyone play these titles today. They have either aged incredibly poorly, or they may not have been all that great to begin with. With that out of the way, we're going to start talking about the game of the day that is Beneath a Steel Sky.
Beneath a Steel Sky is a third-person point-and-click adventure game developed by Revolution Software and published by Virgin Interactive Entertainment in 1994 for the MS-DOS and Amiga computer platforms. Before we can talk about Beneath a Steel Sky, we need to take a look back at the state of the adventure game market in the early 90s, which at the time was being dominated by two major players in the industry, LucasArts and Sierra Online. We've talked a bunch about LucasArts already, but just as a refresher, LucasArts was the company that evolved from George Lucas's original interactive games division, Lucasfilm Games, and over time became incredibly well-known as an adventure game development studio, driven primarily by the contributions of a number of incredibly talented game designers like Tim Schafer, Ron Gilbert, David Fox, Hal Barward, and Dave Grossman, just to name a few. LucasArts' major claim to fame, at least as it pertains to the adventure game genre, was the creation of the script creation utility for Maniac Mansion, or SCUM, engine, which was created by Ron Gilbert as he began brainstorming how to make a user interface for adventure games that would be less cumbersome and more streamlined than the typical text-parser-driven games that were prevalent across the industry in the mid-to-late 80s. The Scum engine, in its original incarnation, would present players with a series of verb commands that the player could take in a given game world, allowing those commands to be combined with other objects to create executable actions for the player to utilize. While that engine would eventually evolve into more of a graphical, icon-driven interface, even as originally designed, it was dramatically more user-friendly than other adventure game engines of the time, which is why it would eventually become the default engine used by nearly every LucasArts adventure title ever developed. Sierra Online as a company we haven't talked about in nearly the same depth as LucasArts yet, but to provide a brief overview... Sierra Online was the other major adventure game developer in the industry, and actually got started working on adventure titles earlier than LucasArts. In fact, Sierra Online, which was previously known as Online Systems, was effectively the originator of the graphical adventure game, with legendary designer Roberta Williams creating Mystery House, as well as a number of other games in their high-res adventure series. Roberta Williams had been inspired by Will Crowther's Colossal Cave Adventure, considered by many to be the first true adventure game ever developed. Roberta and Ken Williams would take the adventure game concept and add graphics, representing a significant technological leap over the text-based interactive fiction-styled games that had existed up to that point. Similar to how LucasArts would create the Scum engine for use with their adventure games, Sierra would also develop a couple of different adventure game engines that they ended up developing nearly all of their adventure titles with. Sierra's first effort, the Adventure Game Interpreter, or AGI engine, was originally designed specifically for the very first King's Quest title back in 1984, and was created in order to enable a number of the key features that Roberta Williams and the team wanted to include with the game. Things like full-color graphics, the ability to play animations on screen, music and sound effects. All of those features were not standard in Sierra's prior titles at the time. But with King's Quest and their shiny new adventure game interpreter, those features and more would become a reality. All told, AGI was used as the technology platform for 14 different games released between 1984 and 1989, and a number of Sierra's most beloved classic series like King's Quest, Leisure Suit Larry, Space Quest, and Police Quest would all get their start using the AGI engine. With advancement in technology came the need to evolve the way Sierra would make adventure games, which is what drove the creation of the company's next adventure game engine, the Sierra Creative Interpreter, or SCI, in 1988. 
the SEI engine would enable a number of enhancements over Sierra's AGI engine, such as the ability to play higher quality music using computer sound cards, display higher quality visuals with significantly more colors than what AGI was capable of, the introduction of a true point-and-click mouse-driven interface, replacing the traditional text parser inputs that had been prevalent previously, and a number of other features that would serve as the foundation for Sierra's next era of adventure titles. The SEI engine would form the foundation of every Sierra adventure released between 1988 and 1997, including the continuation of the series we mentioned before, like King's Quest and Leisure Suit Larry, as well as newcomers like Gabriel Knight 1 and 2, Phantasmagoria, Quest for Glory, and a number of first-person adventure titles like the Shivers series. To say that LucasArts and Sierra were adventure game royalty would be an understatement. But that's not to say that other companies weren't willing to stand toe-to-toe with the two adventure game behemoths, and one of those companies was the British game development studio Revolution Software. Before we can talk about Revolution Software, though, we've got to talk about a couple of its co-founders, who themselves would become instrumental in the video game industry. Those two people were Charles Cecil and Tony Werner. Charles Cecil's first experience with game development came while he was attending Manchester University in 1980, when he was approached by a fellow student, Richard Turner, to develop text adventure games for his newfound computer game company, Arctic Computing. Cecil didn't have much experience in actually developing games at this point, but he did have an idea of what might make a good adventure game. So he decided to take Turner up on his offer, joining Arctic Computing in 1980, shortly after the company had been founded. Once at Arctic Computing, Cecil was assigned development duties on several adventure titles that would make their way to a number of popular UK-based computer platforms of the time, including the Sinclair ZX81, ZX Spectrum, and Amstrad. Even without a significant amount of prior experience, Cecil proved himself to be adept at creating impactful, engaging adventure titles, and he ended up staying at Arctic Computing for five years, eventually becoming a director at the company. Right around the same time as Cecil was making his way up the company ladder, a new employee, Tony Werner, was in the process of joining the company. Werner's early life mimicked a lot of other computer game developers of the time. He had always had a love of technology, and when the text-based adventures of the early 80s started coming on the scene, he was instantly hooked. He spent hours playing games like Adventure and Zork, and would eventually end up teaching himself how to program games himself using assembly language, which, like we've talked about in prior episodes, is a way of programming computers that is pretty much as close to direct hardware access as you can get. Assembly language is not easy to understand, and it is not easy to code, but it is blazingly fast in comparison to higher-level programming languages, assuming you have some coding skills. Warner absolutely had the skills necessary to become a well-respected game programmer, and he put those skills to good use, creating the game Obsidian, which he ended up submitting to Arctic Computing in the hopes of securing a publishing deal with the company. So, Obsidian was submitted to Arctic Computing, and the person who ended up seeing it was none other than Charles Cecil, who thought the title was brilliant. Cecil ended up reaching out to Warner directly to convince him not only to publish the game with Arctic Computing, but also to join the company as a programmer. With job offer in hand, Werner joined Arctic Computing in 1985 and began working on his second title, a vertical shoot-em-up called Ultima Ratio. There was only one problem. Arctic Computing, as a company, shut down in 1986, which meant all of its staff needed to find employment elsewhere. 
Charles Cecil decided to start his own company, a small development studio called Paragon Programming. And because he thought very highly of Werner's skills, he invited him to come along with him. So that's exactly what he did, as Werner joined Paragon Programming and began working on porting various games and programs to different platforms, mainly in support of British video game publisher US Gold, which Paragon Programming had entered into a long-term partnership with. It wouldn't take long, though, before Cecil would be poached from his own company and offered a leadership role at US Gold itself, which he promptly took, deciding to move away from direct development and instead focus on managing teams of people. Werner, similarly, would end up leaving Paragon Programming shortly after, taking on various jobs in the computer and video game industry, eventually settling in at a company called Bytron Aviation Systems, where he would be responsible for digitizing paper processes that were still in use in air traffic control towers across the UK, which, by the way, was the first time these particular processes were recreated in digital form. Werner, along with fellow programmer David Sykes, were the leads for this particular effort and would receive a fair amount of acclaim internal to the company for the work they were able to accomplish. While Werner and Sykes were busy creating the future of aviation systems, Charles Cecil was in a perpetual state of career expansion. Recall that after leaving Paragon Programming, Cecil joined publisher U.S. Gold as a member of their leadership team. Well, just a year after assuming that position, Cecil would be poached yet again by even bigger video game developer and publisher Activision, as Cecil was asked to take over management of their entire European development division. He accepted the position, and along the way ended up meeting a woman named Warren Carmody, who was a general manager at Activision tasked with developing the Sierra brand name in Europe. Cecil and Carmody shared a lot of mutual interests, and it wouldn't take long before the two began dating, eventually marrying a couple years later. By the time 1989 rolled around, Cecil was once again thinking about what his next career move was going to be. While he didn't have any issue working with Activision, he believed that his talents could best be utilized by creating yet another development studio, and based on his past experiences, he knew exactly who he wanted to contact to become founding members of the studio. For one, his then-girlfriend, Warren Carmody, decided to leave Activision alongside Cecil, which makes sense considering how serious their relationship would eventually become. Beyond Carmody, Cecil also reached out to Tony Warner, as he believed Warner would bring the programming talent needed to really make an impact on the video game industry. Warner, in speaking with Cecil, suggested that there was another guy he might want to include, that being David Sykes, Warner's programming partner at Bytron Aviation Systems. Cecil trusted Warner's judgment, so he agreed to have Sykes join the new company. And with that, Charles Cecil, Tony Warner... Norrin Carmody and David Sykes all left their jobs and founded a brand new game development studio, Revolution Software. With the four founding members now free to pursue developing whatever they wanted, the question on everyone's mind was, what exactly should their first game be? And here, Cecil had an idea. Cecil had always been fond of adventure titles and appreciated the mix of narrative and puzzles that accompanied most adventure games of the time, in particular those created by Sierra Online. While Cecil was definitely a fan of Roberta Williams and the rest of Sierra, he questioned whether there was a way to create a game where the narrative was a bit more grounded. He felt like games like King's Quest, while good, were just a bit too outlandish, often presenting players with situations that would never really happen in real life. At the same time, he appreciated that the narrative was at least somewhat serious in nature, and certainly more serious than the majority of LucasArts adventure titles, which were decidedly more zany and comical. 
So he decided that the approach he wanted the team to take was somewhere in between the Sierra and LucasArts styles. Cecil suggested that the company's new game should be a story grounded in reality, where there were high stakes at play, but wanted to mix those serious elements with comedic sections and dialogue as a means to cut the tension a bit. In his words, he wanted to create a game that didn't take itself too seriously, but did have a serious story. That concept would eventually evolve into Revolution Software's first game, Lore of the Temptress, a third-person point-and-click adventure title designed to compete with the contemporary Sierra and LucasArts offerings. Now, some of you might be wondering how Lore of the Temptress would distinguish itself from the much more well-known adventure games of the time, primarily those designed using either the Scum engine if created by LucasArts or the SCI engine if developed by Sierra. Well, the answer to that question lies in the new engine created by Revolution Software, which would be dubbed the Virtual Theater Engine. On the surface, the Virtual Theater Engine might appear to be a fairly traditional adventure game engine, in that it facilitates point-and-click gameplay, branching dialogue trees, object and world interaction, multiple characters, and all of the other stuff you typically associate with a title when you hear the phrase adventure game. But under the hood, there were a couple of key differences that would serve to enable Revolution Software to create unique gaming experiences. For one, the engine itself, which was developed by Tony Werner and David Sykes, was designed to be able to perform well regardless of what platform it ran on. That platform interoperability, the ability to create the framework of a game once and then have it run pretty much anywhere, as long as the engine can run on the target platform, is one of the key benefits to creating a common engine in the first place. The thing is, though, not every computer platform had the same capabilities, and oftentimes, even if an engine might technically run on a variety of platforms, it wouldn't necessarily perform equally well on every one of those platforms. The virtual theater engine was designed from the beginning to perform equally well regardless of what type of computer it might be running on, and in particular, the engine's performance on the venerable Amiga computer platform was dramatically better than other competing engines like Sierra's SCI framework. That level of performance, interestingly, would lead to a unique port for another company's 1992 flagship title. That company was Sierra Online, and that flagship title was the latest entry in their King's Quest series, King's Quest VI. Prior to King's Quest VI being released, Sierra had announced that it was no longer going to support the Amiga computer platform with their releases, a decision that was driven by a couple of different factors. For one, the so-called IBM-compatible PC was gaining traction as a gaming device, with the introduction of better quality sound, higher resolution graphics with significantly more colors than were possible before, and a number of software developers beginning to make standout titles exclusively for the platform. And secondly, Sierra's SCI engine simply didn't run all that well on Amigas. Over time, a number of optimizations had been made to deliver better performance on IBM-compatible PCs, but the Amiga was unfortunately left high and dry. So it kind of makes sense that for King's Quest VI, Sierra would no longer be targeting the Amiga as a viable platform to release their game on. One person, however, saw things differently, and that person was Charles Cecil. Recall that Cecil had been a fan of Sierra Adventure titles, even though he felt like he would be able to design a better game himself. Cecil believed that skipping the Amiga with King's Quest VI would be a mistake, so he reached out to Sierra himself and offered to port the game to the Amiga. Sierra, with nearly nothing to lose, agreed to let Cecil port the title. There was just one problem. There was no way Cecil and the rest of the Revolution Software team would be able to improve the SCI engine in time for the Amiga release, and beyond that, they didn't want to release a subpar experience for Amiga users. 
So Cecil and the team ended up doing the next best thing. They recreated King's Quest VI using their virtual theater engine, which did in fact run well on Amicas, as well as everywhere else. Ultimately, that revised version of the game did release on the Amiga. It sold moderately well, and it proved that Revolution's virtual theater engine was able to deliver feature-rich experiences just as well as Sierra's internal engine. But Revolution Software wasn't content to just have an engine that performed well. They wanted to create an engine that had features no other adventure game engine had. And here, the major distinguishing feature of the engine would end up being how it utilized artificial intelligence to allow characters to behave more realistically in the game world. Now, I should mention, artificial intelligence, or AI, in the early 90s was a lot different than artificial intelligence today. Whereas modern AI can mimic humans in a number of creative endeavors like art and music creation, and can also serve as an all-knowing personal assistant, the AI routines of the early 90s were primarily based on assigning computer-controlled characters an agenda, or a set of behaviors, and having those behaviors dictate how the character would interact with the game world. For the virtual theater engine, Werner and Sykes would create AI procedures that would allow characters to navigate and explore the environment in a given game. Meaning that for one of the first times in an adventure game, a non-player character might independently be walking from screen to screen, doing something, rather than simply standing in a static location waiting for a player to interact with them. This may not sound like a big deal, but it truly was, and I don't know of any other adventure game company that utilized a similar mechanic, at least in the early 90s. The virtual theater engine also had the ability to make characters and objects in a game world solid, meaning they actually occupied space in the world, which meant that players couldn't simply pass through those objects and characters. Instead, players could be blocked from moving around a scene based on the actions of the computer characters, and players would have to either navigate past them or wait for those characters to move before they could proceed. Once again, this feels like something that would be a minor feature in a modern title, and there's also the potential that it could drive a bit of frustration, especially if a non-player character decided not to move from a given spot, resulting in the player becoming stuck, which, based on my own experience, can happen. But back in the early 90s, that potential frustration was outweighed by just how unique the feature was. That uniqueness helped Lore of the Temptress, Revolution Software's first commercial game, become a well-respected and critically praised release, with many critics and players claiming that Revolution Software had done the unthinkable. They created a point-and-click adventure title as their first game that could actually compete with Sierra's and LucasArts' best work. With Cecil's adventure game design validated and Werner's and Sykes' engine fully operational, attention within Revolution turned to what their next game should be. And here, Cecil decided to leverage a relationship he had originally forged back during his Activision days. While Cecil was working with Activision, he met a man, Dave Gibbons, who had been a fairly famous comic book artist, having been responsible for creating the well-known comic book Watchmen. Cecil considered that it might be interesting to work with Gibbons to take his comic book-styled artwork and integrate it into a narrative-centric game. And Gibbons, by the way, also thought the idea had merit, as he was intrigued by the rapidly developing computer game market, as well as the narrative opportunities that an interactive experience could provide. Unfortunately, though, Activision was in the process of going through a restructuring, which is one of the reasons why Cecil had ended up leaving the company, so the idea ended up getting shelved as Gibbons and Cecil went their separate ways. 
Despite that parting, though, the two remained friends, and it was that friendship that would lead to Cecil asking Gibbons to work together on Revolution Software's second game, which was intended to be another point-and-click adventure using their virtual theater engine, very similar technologically to Lore of the Temptress. The thought was, with Gibbons' help, Revolution would be able to create a narrative and gameplay experience that bridged the gap between comic books and video games. Gibbons would provide a series of artwork for the title, and would draft an initial story for the majority of the game's narrative beats, which would then be revised by Cecil's team as needed, with interactive sequences and puzzles added to the mix. This back-and-forth collaboration, as well as additional narrative refinement, is what would eventually lead to the creation of Beneath a Steel Sky. When work began on the title, Gibbons started by creating a series of pencil sketches of the game's various background scenes, which were then colorized and refined prior to sending the artwork to Cecil and the technical team to be scanned and digitized into usable computer images. That scanning process, similar to other digitization processes around this time, involved a degree of compromise. Each of the original images were scanned into a Macintosh computer at a much higher resolution and color depth than what was possible for games to display, which meant that those high-detail images needed to be converted after the fact into something that a computer game would actually be able to use. To put it into perspective, the original scans of the images were captured using 24-bit color, which equates to around 16 million possible colors for each and every image. The virtual theater engine itself, though, could only display images using 256 colors. So, a significant amount of effort needed to be taken to convert those high-resolution, multi-million color images into a much smaller, less color-rich set of graphics, while also ensuring that the conversion allowed for enough contrast between the background imagery and any character or object sprites that would be inhabiting the game world. Speaking of those sprites, Gibbons would end up designing many of the characters that would be used in the game, though he did hit a couple of snags as he was going through that process. We call that Gibbons was a comic book artist by trade, and in that industry, the expressiveness of any character was limited solely by the creativity and talent of the original artist. Creating sprites for an early 90s adventure game, though, was a different matter entirely, as each character's face was only allotted around 63 total pixels. To demonstrate just how restrictive that is, Consider that the game itself was designed to run at a resolution of 320 pixels by 200 pixels, which equates to 64,000 total pixels on any given screen. Gibbons had to create expressive character faces in a total area that represented 0.1% of the overall screen a player would be viewing. I recognize that this kind of limitation was prevalent in many games made around this time, but it's still amazing to me how pixel artists can create such expressive work with such restrictions. While Gibbons and several other artists like Steve Ince, an eventual producer for the Broken Sword series, and Les Pace were working on the game's graphics, Dave Cummins was working on the dialogue for the various characters in the game, which would effectively be the primary way that the game would convey its story. The creation of that dialogue was actually a point of contention between Cecil and Cummins, which I found interesting. Recall that when Cecil originally started making adventure games, he envisioned creating experiences that were kind of in between the serious nature of Sierra titles and the wacky antics prevalent in LucasArts titles. Well, Cummins was squarely in the LucasArts camp, and his initial dialogue and flavor text was predominantly intended to be comical and cartoonish. Cecil felt like the story was more serious, and as a result, wanted more serious dialogue. The two just couldn't see eye-to-eye eye on the issue, so eventually they reached a compromise that had dialogue and situations alternating between comic relief and serious discussions. 
Now, I must say that the first time I played Beneath a Steel Sky, I had serious critiques about this tonal inconsistency and complained that the shifting tones was a distraction rather than a benefit to the game. I'll let you know what I think based on my recent playthrough in a little bit, but suffice it to say, as you play through the game, you can definitely see the disparity between Cummins and Cecil's influences. Interestingly, Cummins also wrote the music for the game, and here you can definitely spot his influence. Many of the tunes were often cartoon-like, and in some cases didn't align with the severity of the scene on the screen. I suppose this might have been a way to interject his vision a bit further into the game. Anyway, back to the dialogue. The intent was for the game to be fully voice acted, at least for the CD-ROM version, and the Revolution Software team realized that they needed to deliver a professionally cast set of characters to really enhance the game. So, they hired various actors from the Royal Shakespeare Company, a fairly popular British theater troupe who put on numerous plays each year. The thought was, by asking accomplished actors to portray the characters in the game, that the quality of the experience would be enhanced dramatically. There was just one slight issue. Stage actors are not the same as voice actors, and after recording 5,000 lines of dialogue over a two-day massive recording session, Cecil and the team realized that the results were just not that great. So they made the difficult decision to scrap all of that work and redo the entire recording, this time with trained voice actors as opposed to individuals more used to acting on stage. I do have to mention that this level of care applied to voice acting, especially given the time the game was released, is a bit of a shock to me. With fully voiced games just starting to become a thing, many development companies turned to their internal staff to lend their vocal quote-unquote talents to their games, which meant that a lot of games sounded very much like software developers were attempting to record voice lines, which, as you might imagine, did not always result in the best recorded dialogue. Revolution Software wanted to buck that trend by hiring real voice actors, and I commend them for their decision. With the sound, music, story, and graphics coming together, the only thing that was left was to make sure that the game engine could handle all of the features that the team wanted to include in the game. And here, there would have to be a few revisions made to the original Virtual Theater engine. This new version, dubbed Virtual Theater 2.0, would be designed to allow greater diversity in how the game behaved when working with different objects in the game world. The biggest shift involved the fact that in Beneath a Steel Sky, at any given point there could be several intersecting quest threads going on, which required some tweaking beyond the original version of the engine, which was designed for the much more linear lore of the Temptress. The other big change was making it so that individual objects in the world could behave independently from each other, even if those objects represented the same type of item. The example that Werner gives here is how a standard door worked. In Lord of the Temptress, the engine was defined in such a way that all doors behaved in exactly the same way. There was no opportunity to tweak settings for one door or another. It simply worked based on how the engine was designed to simulate a door. In Beneath a Steel Sky, doors and pretty much every other game world object had the ability to be unique. It may sound like a small change, but the fact is, this one simple shift gave the game's developers and designers the ability to enhance immersion for the game's players, not to mention increased diversity in the game's world, which was obviously viewed as a net positive. Eventually, all of the elements of the game would come together, and Beneath the Steel Sky would be released in early 1994 for both the Amiga and MS-DOS computer platforms. Upon its release, the game would impress critics and players alike, many of whom declared the game to be one of the best adventure titles of all time. 
Many publications praised the game's deep and engaging story, the quality of the game's puzzles, and interestingly, the dialogue for the various characters. In fact, Beneath the Steel Sky would receive the award for Best Dialogue from PC Gamer, in addition to winning numerous Best Adventure Game of the Year awards from a variety of other game review magazines. All told, it would sell around 400,000 copies in the years following its release, which, while not quite good enough to be a mainstream mega-hit, was still a really strong sales figure for an adventure title. Interestingly, despite its success, Revolution Software would move on to a different game series entirely shortly after Beneath the Steel Sky released, as they would create the classic adventure title Broken Sword, which, spoiler alert, will be the subject of a future podcast at some point in the next couple months. While Broken Sword would arguably become Revolution's biggest hit, there were still routinely discussions about whether it would be worth it to revisit Beneath the Steel Sky over the years. Sure, there would be several revisits of the original Beneath the Steel Sky, such as its reclassification as freeware back in 2003 and the iOS remaster released in late 2009, but any hopes of a sequel were still just that, player hopes. All that would change in 2012, when Cecil and the rest of the Revolution Software team decided that they would add Beneath the Steel Sky 2 to one of the Kickstarter funding goals associated with the fifth Broken Sword game, The Serpent's Curse. Revolution stated that if they reached $1 million in funding for that game, then they would work on Beneath the Steel Sky 2 in earnest. Unfortunately, though, that funding goal was never reached, and many fans believed this would be the last we'd hear of a potential sequel. The story doesn't end there, though, as eight years later, fans would be delighted and surprised with a new announcement. Beneath the Steel Sky 2, now known as Beyond the Steel Sky, would be released in 2020 on both Apple Arcade as well as modern computer platforms. Fans everywhere were excited by the news. And then, they saw that it was going to be a 3D adventure title, and there was automatically a feeling of hesitation. Would this be the same level of quality as everyone had come to expect from Revolution Software, and would it allow for the same point-and-click-and-puzzle gameplay that players wanted to experience? Well, it turns out that any fears were unfounded, as I can confirm from personal experience that Beyond a Steel Sky is an awesome game, and is one I recommend everyone give a try. It kept all of the heart of the original while expanding on the traditional point-and-click gameplay formula through its use of three-dimensional navigation. If you haven't already, definitely give this one a go. All of that said, the original Beneath the Steel Sky remains an important release in gaming history. As just the second release from Revolution Software, a team that legitimately gave both LucasArts and Sierra a run for their money back in the 90s, and is, by the way, still actively developing games, which neither LucasArts or Sierra is doing, its release represented the evolution of a talented team of coders, designers, writers, and musicians from a small upstart into a true industry player. While Beneath the Steel Sky wouldn't put Revolution fully on the map, that distinction belongs to Circle of Blood or Broken Sword, depending on your geography, the fact is that Beneath the Steel Sky stands on its own as a unique, quirky, and well-loved point-and-click adventure title, and as such, is definitely one of those games that will likely be remembered fondly forever.
we are now going to shift to start talking about what it feels like to play Beneath the Steel Sky today versus when it was released 30 years ago. In many ways, Beneath the Steel Sky is a very traditional third-person point-and-click adventure title, with a number of environments to explore, characters to speak with, items to pick up and use, and puzzles to solve. Being a mid-90s adventure, you interact with the game world with a purely mouse-driven interface, similar in some respects to adventures from the likes of Sierra and LucasArts, though with a somewhat more simplified control scheme that eliminates a number of icons or verb commands for specific subsets of actions. As an example, typical adventure games of the time might have a series of different commands that a player can execute. Things like talk to, use, open, examine, push, those kinds of things. In Beneath the Steel Sky, the interface is streamlined to effectively make every action that you can take be driven by the context of what you're trying to do. By default, hovering over an item or hotspot in the game world will tell you what the object or location is. Left-clicking will examine the item, and right-clicking will attempt to use the item, whatever use means in your particular context. If you're hovering over a character, use means talk. If you're hovering over a switch, use means turn on or off. You get the picture. Effectively, the entire control scheme was simplified to remove any degree of guesswork, and that streamlining of potential player actions allows you to focus more on the story and puzzles as opposed to the game's interface, which I found was a welcome change. As you play the game, you'll also notice a couple of other interesting ways that Beneath the Steel Sky distinguishes itself from other adventures. For one, the artificial intelligence of various non-player characters, like we talked about earlier, was an interesting addition that served to make the game world feel more alive. There were several situations where I'd be looking for a character who I thought was supposed to be in a specific spot, only to realize that he was instead lounging in his apartment, simply because his AI routine told him it was time to take a break. While I applaud the ingenuity of the design and recognize that it is something that was entirely different than what other adventure games implemented, I will say that it was a tad frustrating in practice, as there were a couple occasions where I'd have to wait for a non-player character to return to his or her position before I could actually interact with them in a meaningful way. This wasn't a huge deal, and I don't believe it really detracted from the experience of playing the game, but it is something that you'll likely have an opinion on. Also unique to Beneath the Steel Sky is the fact that through a good chunk of the adventure, you have access to a companion character, a robotic sidekick named Joey, who effectively acts as a sentient inventory item. Joey can be commanded to interact with various objects in the game world, and there are certain puzzles that can only be completed by using Joey to interface with different objects or characters. While Joey's implementation stops short of being a true companion character with its own agenda or artificial intelligence, his personality does make it so that using Joey is almost always an enjoyable experience, whether you end up solving a puzzle or you end up being berated in a playful, sarcastic manner, which anyone who has a sibling will likely recognize as good-natured family ribbing. The relationship between your character and Joey is interesting, and I enjoyed every time the two interacted throughout the game. Another way Beneath the Steel Sky distances itself from its peers is in the overall design of several progression elements in the game, which intersperse typical adventure game staples like finding a key to a door alongside other less traditional elements like navigating and exploring a representation of cyberspace, which in the game was known as Link Space. Now, I do have to talk a bit about Link Space because I believed it was one of the coolest set of experiences in the game. The way it works 
is as part of the storyline, you'll be expected to interface with a computer system known as Link, which is effectively an omniscient artificial intelligence that maintains law and order within the walls of the socially stratified Union City. Access to everything in the city, including your own social standing, is maintained in Link, and at various points throughout the story, you might be tasked with exploring the equivalent of a Link file system in search of clues or other information that you need to progress in the game. When you jack into Link Space, your avatar changes to a digital representation of a cyber being, in the most 90s cyber being way possible. Once you're in control of this digital representation of yourself, you navigate the Link Space environment in a manner traditional of any other area of the game, using your mouse to move around and use various hotspots in the world. The difference is, while in Link Space, your inventory is replaced by the equivalent of computer commands like decompress, open, and decrypt, as well as some other special commands you pick up along the way, and you have to use those commands to interact with the environment in order to progress and unlock the secrets hidden within. I will freely admit that figuring out how to maneuver around Link Space was pretty simple overall, and it's not like you're really doing much more than solving traditional adventure game puzzles, albeit in a different kind of environment. But for some reason, I found Link Space to be strangely alluring, and as I played the game, I conceptualized a game in my head where the sole purpose was to do hacker kinds of things in order to break into computer systems, using commands similar to those found in the game. Now before everyone jumps in, yes, I recognize there are in fact hacker games available on the market that allow you to do just that. I'm not mentioning this because I feel like I discovered an untapped opportunity for future games. I'm more mentioning it because it speaks to how engaged I was in navigating the link space section of the game. When a game makes you think about how to use a certain mechanic as an entirely standalone experience simply because you want to experience more of it, you know it's something good. And from my perspective, Link Space perfectly fit within the game's overarching narrative, while itself being a well-designed area with thematically relevant puzzles. Beyond Link Space and the game's AI-controlled characters, perhaps the most notable way Beneath the Steel Sky differed from other adventures is the general tone of the entire adventure, which walks a thin line between overt comedy, serious situations, and at times existential dread. Here, I have to relay a bit of a personal story. I mentioned earlier that the first time I played Beneath the Steel Sky, which was actually for a prior podcast I had hosted, I was struck by the tonal inconsistency of the entire experience, and I had some serious critiques about how much I disliked the fact that the game would shift from an incredibly serious situation to a comedic one-liner almost in the same breath. It felt to me at the time like the game was designed haphazardly, and though I enjoyed the game overall, I was put off by the constantly shifting tones. Playing through the game today, around five years or so after that initial experience, I can say that I don't know what I was thinking back then, as my impression has entirely changed. During my latest playthrough, I honestly had no issue with the tone of the game, and I felt like the designers did an excellent job of mixing comedy with seriousness, even stretching beyond dialogue to include visual gags that I found amusing, such as your character Robert Foster's sweater that he wears under his ultra-punk leather trench coat. Picture this scene. You have to investigate the core of a nuclear reactor, an environment that is deadly if proper protection isn't worn. So you decide to wear a nuclear protection suit over your clothes, which you find in a nearby locker. You go over and instruct your character to change his clothes, so he takes off his overcoat to reveal an incredibly cute sweater with a teddy bear on it. Completely unexpected and entirely divergent from the tone of the game in that particular scene. But for some reason... 
it really worked for me. As in, I almost audibly chuckled at the ridiculousness of the situation. Years ago, I don't recall feeling the same way at all. And I think this just goes to prove that the way you feel about a game can change, sometimes dramatically, over time. That's one of the reasons why I make it a point to play every game that we cover, even if I've played them before. You never know how you're going to feel about a certain game until you fire it up, and since tastes and opinions change over time, it's definitely worthwhile to revisit games you may have experienced previously. Who knows, you might find a new favorite game. Anyway, personal anecdote aside, the majority of Beneath the Steel Sky is in fact a traditional adventure game experience. You point, you click, you learn, and you solve. I say that not to be reductive, but simply to illustrate that if you've played a point-and-click adventure game before, you pretty much know what you're going to get when you sit down to play Beneath the Steel Sky. Before we talk about more of the specific aspects of what makes Beneath the Steel Sky unique, I do need to take a look at the back of the box, because as you all know, I love looking at the back of the box for these games. I love learning how different companies marketed their experiences, how they tried to get consumers to actually purchase their products. Back around this time, we didn't have the internet with tons of gameplay videos. We certainly didn't have YouTube. So a lot of times our decisions were based on what the box looked like. Did it look cool? Did it say something cool on the back of the box? If so, you might actually buy it. Especially for a company like Revolution Software, this was only their second title, so they didn't have a bunch of fans to fall back on like companies like Sierra and LucasArts might. You simply see a LucasArts game or Sierra game and you think, oh yeah, I'm going to buy that because it's a LucasArts or Sierra game. Revolution Software had not yet achieved that fame. So I really do want to take a look at the back of the box and see how they tried to get people to purchase their game back in the mid-90s. So... For Beneath the Steel Sky, the back of the box says Paranoid population, psychotic criminals, power-hungry corporations, big brother government, haves and have-nots. America? Close. In the not-so-impossible future, in the melting pot of Union City, all man's social problems are coming to a boil under the claustrophobic lid of a steel sky. From the pit of the industrial level to the belly of the commercial sector to the spheres where the rich and powerful play, it's man against man, man against machine, man against time. In an urban hell, only you can liberate. Maybe. Features. Innovative virtual theater. Environment generates a sophisticated world where every action you take has repercussions and each character you meet exists outside its current location. Over 100 locations designed and art-directed by award-winning comic book author Dave Gibbons of the Watchmen fame. And exclusive Dave Gibbons Beneath the Steel Sky comic book included. And then there are some pictures on the back of the box from different scenes in the game world. And I've got to say, this one was pretty intriguing to me. I did not purchase Beneath the Steel Sky back when it was originally released. I actually wasn't really fully aware of it until probably within the last 15 years or so. I wasn't really aware of it back when it originally came out. That being said, this box really works for me. I thought it sounded amazing, and it definitely would have piqued my interest if I would have seen it back when it originally released. Anyway, let's move on to the more specific aspects of the game. We're going to start by talking about the graphics. The graphics in the game all look great, 
with a pixel art style reminiscent of the best point-and-click adventures of the early to mid-90s. I don't know that I would call any aspect of the graphics as something revolutionary, but I can safely say that the graphics were on par, at a minimum, with a typical Sierra-style adventure game of the time, with a focus more so on realistic environments and character designs as opposed to the more cartoon caricature-like design of many of LucasArts' adventure titles. Generally speaking, I thought the character artwork was very well done, and the environmental design definitely evoked a feeling of navigating a futuristic city, with each section of the world separated based on social status. In the game's world, the further to the bottom of the city you live, the more affluent you are, and as you progress through the game, you begin in one of the top levels of the city, which was a somewhat dilapidated industrial zone with factories and machinery being the primary features. As you progress further down the city levels, the environments become cleaner and more well-kempt, owing to the fact that the richer and more privileged members of the populace live on those levels. And I've got to say, the game's art design is great, and each environment and city level almost acts like a character itself. You don't need to speak to any characters in a given area to determine where you are, or in what social circle that level's inhabitants belong to. The city and its design does that itself, and I thought the graphics and design were great. Moving on to the sound and music. For me, the sound and music was a bit of a mixed bag. On one hand, I thought the soundtrack sounded really good, and I legitimately enjoyed every song in the game. On the other hand, this is an area where I believe the tonal inconsistency still reared its ugly head, as there were certain scenes that had music that really didn't fit with the emotion that I believe the game was intending to convey. This is something that I do believe should have been addressed as part of the overall design, but like I said, the music as a standalone thing was all great, so I admit that I am a bit conflicted here. The other key aspect of the sonic environment of the game is the voice acting, and here I felt like the majority of the game's voice actors did a great job. I especially enjoyed the robotic synthesized voice used by Joey, your companion character, and I felt like that voice fit in with the character perfectly. Almost every other character and voice pair was pretty darn good, though I will say that if I were to be a bit nitpicky, the voice acting can sometimes slip into caricature, which can be a little distracting if you're looking for a serious experience. That said, the game itself is not a purely serious experience, so from that perspective, the voice acting works just fine. Moving on to the narrative and story. You play as Robert Foster, an adult man who, years prior, had crash-landed in a dystopian area of the Australian outback known as The Gap. At the time, you were a baby fleeing with your mother from Union City, an industrial society presided over by an omniscient artificial intelligent being known as Link. When you crash land, your mother unfortunately dies, though luckily, you're found by a group of hunter-gatherers who decide to raise you as their own. As you grow up, you become a respected member of the clan, until one day, Union City officials arrive at your small village, in the hopes of capturing you and returning you to Union City. You go with the Union City security force, and on your flight back into the city, somehow end up crashing again. Luckily, again, you survive the crash, and as you leave the wreckage behind, you're faced with needing to survive a variety of situations in this foreign-to-you city, in the hopes of eventually returning to the Gap. The problem is, for some reason, Link has taken an interest in you, and you realize that in order to reach outside the city walls, you need to first learn more about Union City's AI ruler. 
Along the way, you'll encounter a number of unique characters, solve a variety of different puzzles, and ultimately, hopefully, escape with your life. I gotta say, I loved this story. Everything about it was evocative and conveyed an intriguing mix of dread, revenge, and strangely enough, just a bit of hope, which really worked for me. I honestly have next to no complaints about the story, as I believe it did a stellar job of giving you a reason to continue exploring deeper into the game's world. The bottom line is, I found the whole thing excellent. Moving on to the playability and controls, like we talked about earlier, the controls for Beneath the Steel Sky are pretty much exactly what you would expect given the fact that it's a third-person point-and-click adventure game with the big highlights being the streamlined, context-sensitive control scheme coupled with some unique environments and related puzzles like Link Space. There's really not a ton more to discuss related to the controls, as it is very much a traditional point-and-click game controls-wise. What we should talk a bit more about is the overall playability of the title, which honestly is not appreciably different than any modern adventure game, which from my perspective is a good thing and helps Beneath the Steel Sky transcend the time in which it was created to become a game that anyone can play and enjoy, even today. I especially enjoyed the inclusion of Joey, your most-of-the-time companion sidekick. Even though Joey is, for all intents and purposes, a moving inventory item, the variety of situations and puzzles that you can apply Joey to to help solve is vast, and I appreciated how that variety was played to both serious and comedic effect. Speaking of those puzzles... I enjoyed the logical approach to the puzzle design in the game, where pretty much every solution made sense in reality as well as within the context of the game world. Sure, there were still situations where you can find an item and you know you need to pick it up even though you may not know what you need that item for yet, which might make it seem like you're a bit of a kleptomaniac. But honestly, that's a component of most adventure titles, so I can't really knock it for that. Beyond that, though, the puzzles were pretty great, and I believe this is one of those games where each and every puzzle is beatable without needing to use a walkthrough or look up hints. The fact that the puzzles aren't ridiculously simple, but are still designed in such a way that you don't need to use a walkthrough to succeed, is a testament to the overall design of the game and the care that the development team took in crafting a meaningful adventure that respected the player's skill, time, adaptability, and ability to learn. No complaints here. I was really very impressed. So overall, how did the game feel? Honestly, I enjoyed Beneath the Steel Sky way more than I expected to given my prior experience with the game. Back when I first played it, I thought the story was okay, but a bit too inconsistent. I thought the voice acting was fine for the most part, the graphics and gameplay was fairly traditional. It pretty much felt like any other adventure game that had been released around the time the game came out. Playing through it today, though, I had an entirely different experience and was, generally speaking, much more appreciative of the things the game did differently, while also recognizing the expertise displayed for the things the game did similarly to other adventure titles. Despite being Revolution Software's second official game, it felt as though it was the product of a well-established team, with great controls and gameplay mechanics, and it never felt like it overstayed its welcome which is not something certain other highly acclaimed games can claim for themselves. In short, I had no complaints about the overall feel of the game. It was an experience that I enjoyed greatly. So what is our verdict on Beneath a Steel Sky? Well, you can probably tell by now, but Beneath a Steel Sky ended up exceeding my expectations given my prior experience with the title, 
and I can safely say that it has earned its spot in our pantheon of classic gaming. It might not be the best adventure ever created, and even beyond that, I'm not sure that Beneath the Steel Sky is a top 10 adventure title. What it is, though, is a well-crafted experience that any adventure gamer, or even anyone with a passing interest in dystopian game worlds, should spend some time playing. I truly believe it is worth your time, and as such, Beneath the Steel Sky has just become our newest addition to our pantheon of classic gaming. was our episode on Beneath the Steel Sky. I hope you all enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed creating it. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing, provide feedback, comments, suggestions, or just talk about classic games and technology in general. I would love to hear from you, and there are a few ways you can reach out. I have an X account with the handle at ClassicGamingT. I have an email address, which is ClassicGamingToday at gmail.com, and I have a Discord server. The link is in the show notes. Discord is the best way to get in touch with me and the rest of the community around this podcast. We have a ton of fun out on Discord. I highly encourage you all to join. I also highly encourage you to check out our Patreon. It is patreon.com slash classic gaming today. So if you want even more classic gaming today goodness, patreon.com slash classic gaming today is where it's at. Before we sign off for the week, I do want to mention that our next episode is going to be focused on the sounds of the classics. Super NES Volume 1. This is our next in the line of Sounds of the Classics series, which we're doing around every 10-ish episodes or so. So if you have any particularly fond or favorite tracks from the Super Nintendo, feel free to write in and let me know. At the same time, I recognize you're likely listening to this podcast on any number of podcast services. And if you would feel so inclined, it would be great if you could leave me a review. This is not about bolstering star counts. It's not about trying to harvest a ton of five-star ratings, though. If that happens, awesome, it means we're doing something right. No, what it's really all about is trying to deliver the best possible podcast I can. The only way to do that is to get feedback from all of you because we get new listeners every single day. It's absolutely awesome. I want to make sure that I'm continuing to hit the mark and that I can continue to try to deliver the best possible podcast I can. We'll be back in around a week with our next episode focused on the sounds of the classics, Super Nintendo Volume 1. Until then, remember, sometimes the games of the past are just as good, if not better, than the games of today. Goodbye, everyone. <laughs>